Hello, everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Continuous Coach Podcast. Today, Darcy and I are joined by one of the top NCAA field coaches. If you like what you hear today and want to support us, please take a moment to follow us on Spotify or your preferred podcast platform and give us a top rating if applicable. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find us on social media at the Cont Coach on both Instagram and Twitter, as well as send us an email at thecontinuouscoach at gmail.com. My voice is a little scratchy today, as up here in Canada, just recently we were allowed to continue games. I've been coaching really hard, and now my voice is feeling the, the wrath. Today, we have Mike Morgan, the two-time Division II National Championship coach at Merrimack College. Since his last championship, they've been elevated within the ranks of Division I and continue to be a dominant force in the sport. He's not only coach of this program, but he's also a proud alumnus. As a player, Mike was an All-American selection during the 2000 season, in which he helped Merrimack claim its first ever any 10 title. If you think this bio is short for a reason, it is because it is. Besides Merrimack, the only other program that Mike has worked with is his high school alma mater as well. There, he rose them as well to the ranks of a champion. This kind of consistency has helped Mike elevate all of his programs to the highest level. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Mike and are ready to get your notepads out as you join us on our journey to be coaches who continuously strive to learn and get better. Welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks for joining us here. We really appreciate it. You know, as, as we were just talking before we, we started the pod here, I'm, I'm from the Boston area and uh, was so great to watch your program, um, you know, grow over the years, you know, coaching high school there and then, and then later coaching college there. Um, and, and, and it was it was inspiring, right? You, t- you took a team that, you know, uh, when you first started was 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 on the downtrend and, and, you, and you really brought it up and rose it up. And I know it was a, a part time job uh, when you first took over. And, uh, and I was working part-time jobs as well as a head coach. And, and it was inspiring to say, all right, great. There's something to strive for, right? Something for the kids to strive for, but something for coaches to strive for as well. But I also know that you also uh, didn't just coach at your alma mater at Merrimack. You coached at your alma mater at high school. And those are really your only two stops. So talk to us a little bit about that and, and, and what that means for you to have that opportunity to be the head coach at both of those places and as the head coach of both those places, taking the championships in pretty high level. No, oh, I appreciate you guys having me on. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I joke all the time. It's very rare that, you know, you get to coach your Almada, you know, not only in high school, but also college. And then, you know, not only win, you know, the two national championships, D2, but now, you know, take this program into the new heights in D1 and, and kind of almost start with new challenges. But yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's definitely different from the beginning being part-time and, um, you know, having a regular job and, and coming up there, as you know, and, trying to put something together hours before practice and juggle all things. I mean, I don't know how I have enough time now to do it. Um, back then it's, it's amazing how like, you know, you have some great staff with you and guys can help you, but um, it was challenging. And I think, you know, coming in, like you said, we were, we were six and eight um, the year before I got there. And, and, you know, I kind of told the guys, you know, I want to be in the national championship in the next five years. And I think that's possible. And, you know, it left us um, about, I think two or three years after um, the five years we ended up finally getting there in 17, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a whole nother level of desire. I think you coach for, for with when you coach your own mod and, 
you know, you have your school colors on, you played in, you know, so I think for me, um, I've always valued, you know, the, the coaching, not only at the high school level, but also as a part-timer in college, because it's hard, you know what I mean? We're all, you know, just doing the same job. It's all coaching, but you know, there's limitations, you know, when you are part-time or if you're at a school kind of developing the program. But for us, um, it's been special. I mean, like I said, I've had some great, great assistants and I have great ones now. And um, just being able to really share the same vision, you know, with them and, and them buy into kind of what I want to set forth in the very beginning and still have, um, it's kind of are where you are. And I think I've always said, you know, that's why winning teams, you know, remain winning teams. You know, I think if you build the right culture and the right, um, you know, standards and accountability, every, every, you know, buzzword coaches throw around, which I believe are, are true. Uh, I think you kind of get where we are now. And I think it's kind of helped us, you know, entering division one. So, um, how does that, how did that help you, uh, you know, being recruited from St. Dominic and going to Merrimack? How did that, re- how did that process go? And, and how much of your recruiting now at Merrimack, I know before the pod, we were talking about, you know, kind of how you were happy to get back in the swing of things and kind of can, can do that, that tour kind of off the back of your hand. Um, how much did that experience being recruited to Merrimack help you as a coach now recruiting at Merrimack? Uh, yeah. I mean, when I was recruited, it was very different, you know, growing up on Long Island, um, you know, I played for St. Dominic, like you mentioned, and it, it's in arguably the best conference or one up in the country, you know, in the Catholic League on Long Island. And um, I was fortunate enough to, to be a first team Long Island guy, our first team um, uh, Catholic League guy. So I think that was a little bit of publication that got out there that helped me get recruited a little bit. But back then there was, you know, there was no YouTube. There was really no DVDs even, you know, it was you had a VHS, you put together some clips and hopefully someone watched it. But honestly, you know, between you and I, no one, no one's coming to the St. Dominic Shamanad game, you know, so it was one of those where... Uh, it really helped me understand that, you know, if you look at our roster now, we're, we're not a bunch of blue blood programs that represented high school wise. You know, it's a lot of kids from programs like mine that weren't, you know, nationally known or, or, or winning even. Um, so I think we've kind of went that route of find the best players from obviously good programs, but also find, you know, diamonds in the rough. I mean, when you look at, you know, our top maybe, you know, five or six players, you're talking about a couple of D3s that were recruiting them, uh, a couple of D2s a couple of D1s that were low passed on some of these guys. And these guys are, you know, division one starters, you know, and I think that's one of the things that I think kind of helped me understand that, Hey, listen, there's going to be guys that are underlooked. There's going to be guys from untraditional areas. Uh, if you look at our roster now, you know, a lot of Midwest, a lot of West, a lot of Florida, um, you know, Carolinas, you know, you go up to Maine. I mean, we have, you know, three guys who play major roles that are Maine guys, you know? So I think it, it did help me with that. And it also helped when you, you start off kind of how I did, you know, it develops a work ethic. You know, I didn't, I didn't step into a job where, you know, everything was kind of in place and was easy. You know, I kind of had to grind. That's a word we use, we use a lot here. Um, and it kind of represents the type of guys we have. You know, they're guys who uh, have a chip on their shoulder. I mean, if you watch us play, you know, we play with a lot of edge, a lot of confidence. Um, and that comes from preparation. It comes from work. You know, I, I don't particularly like the word swagger, um, but I think there is something to that word because swagger to me, you know, kind of, are you wearing the, the helmet tilted the right way? Or, you know, if you have the nice, know the nice socks or yeah like that to me really means nothing i think swagger comes from if you're prepared you work hard and you're confident in your program your teammates your coaches you can go out there and play with a lot you know a lot of edge and have a lot of fun and play with confidence i think all those you know develop me and honestly there's a lot a lot of great guys in the coaching world and i think when you you know take over a program where your experience is you know playing and having a pretty good career as a player but then really just coaching you know four years of high school and then getting thrown into the college ranks um, I kind of knew that I didn't know everything, you know, certainly. And I, I leaned on a lot of guys who, you know, I have a lot of respect for, you know, Greg Canella is one of them, Sean Clark, Mike Daly, a lot of guys who I said, you know what, these guys are established. They have stuff they do well. 
um, Matt Schomburg, you know, a lot of guys who I said, you know what, I'm going to go just sit down with these guys and pick their brain on different things, offensively, defensively, face-offs. And I knew, you know, I didn't have that, you know, I didn't play at Smithtown West and then go to, you know, Duke. Like, so I, you know, I knew I had to learn a lot. And I think, you know, the, the amount of time those guys gave me, I heard Craig Hell one time I went out there, just asked him to sit down and go over things. And I was very broad. I didn't even know what I wanted to go over. And, you know, he said, come out. And I figured he'd give me, you know, if he gave me 30 minutes, you know, that'd be incredible. We, I was there for almost an hour and a half. And I almost had to be like, all right, coach, thanks. You know, like I, I felt bad. I was taking his time. But, you know, he gave me an hour and a half of stuff, went over things, gave me some printouts. And, you know, that's why the coaching world in lacrosse is different than any other sport. You know, those guys open their doors and, you know, and help me develop as a coach. And that's why, you know, um, whether it's doing podcasts like this or it's, you know, uh, speaking at different events in different areas where it's not traditional or um, doing Zoom calls with club program coaches that want to learn more. I've always kind of learned that, you know, what I was given, I want to give back. Yeah, I think that's um... – you know, we talked about Neil before, but, uh, you know, Neil was like that with me anytime I wanted to come by and, and, and chat or, or whatever, uh, you know, door was always open, but also guys that I didn't even know. I remember reaching out to Chris Burdick when he was at Providence and he was, yeah, come on, like come into the locker room, see how I talk to the guys. See, like, it was, it's just such a great community, you know, yeah. we've had, probably, um, we've had probably, I'd say in the last couple of years, probably since, you know, national championship and 17 appearance on the division one, you know, we've never denied a guy from coming to practice or, you know, coming and talking next to those, watching. I think it's as you get better and more visible, you know, the amount of requests go up a little bit, obviously. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's nice to say, hey, listen, come out of practice, you know, just walk wherever you want on the sideline, you know, go and listen, take whatever, you, and then follow up if you want. We'll help. And, you know, it's just something that I believe in. And, and, you know, like I said, guys help me. And I always believe that, you know what, if I can help guys that are kind of wear my shoes, you know, 16 years ago, you know, I'd like to do that being in the Boston area, watching your program grow, and the year after year after year, the success and trying to get past LeMoyne, right? And so I can remember there was years when you'd win, you'd have two losses, two to LeMoyne, right? And then you finally would break through and beat him in the regular season, but then not in the Northeast 10 tournament or, or wherever that, that, that might have come through. But 2017, uh, I remember you're in Gillette. You're playing uh, uh, Limestone. I, I was I was there for the game. I thought you guys were gonna take it that year, um, you know. And and you had uh, beat Lemoyne earlier in that season. Um, and I thought this is the year, you know. And so, how how do you like a lot of the coaches that we have? Listen, they're they're high school coaches, or they're they're junior B coaches, or junior A coaches in, in box up here in Canada. And we all have that one opponent, right? That just looms large. It's that giant, you know, a, what was the joy of finally breaking through and beating them? Like in some ways, did that mean more than winning the national championship? And then B, um, you know, telling those coaches and speaking to those coaches, how do you keep your players motivated to overcome that team that's ahead of you and, and do what you did where, well, I know you're D one now, but you became that top team in the Northeast 10 and that top team in division two. Yeah, it's um, it's a growing process for everybody. I think, you know, the players, you know, you're not going to win without the players. That was certainly part of it. You know, we didn't have the players LeMoyne had. You know, we had to get close enough in terms of talent to be able to have the conversation, you know, like we should be beating these guys. You know, we always thought we're right there. Like you said, you take one from them, then you lose in the playoffs. Or, you know, you win the playoffs, you lose to them in the NCAA tournament, you know. And I think that was one thing that as a staff um, – you know, you gain confidence and, and players gain confidence every time you go out there and you play an opponent that's good and you beat them. 
Um, and I think the major thing was we being a confident coach and having a confident staff, I think it also kind of work in reverse. Whereas if we're spending, you know, let's say an hour and a half on every film session of every other opponent, but then all of a sudden Lemoyne, you know, we're doing two or three film sessions. We're overcooking it. I think your team sees this confident coach and this confident staff all of a sudden putting these guys on a pedestal where it's like, all of a sudden they don't have the confidence where they're like, wow, if the coaches have to spend this much time. So I think for us, we just kind of said, you know what? We're good enough to beat this team. It's time to start focusing on us. And we spent more time, you know, we spent certainly the time on film and, and scout that we typically do on our opponents. But I think once we started shifting towards, hey, listen, let's worry about us. Let's worry about our game. You know, we'll worry, worry about them trying to beat us, not us trying to beat them. I think that's where it shifted. And honestly, I think, you know, um, you got to play those games to win. I think we, in the past, we're always, you know, trying to manipulate the game, whether it be with, you know, roster, plays, situational lacrosse. Whereas when we finally said, you know what, like we got to let these guys play fast. Because if you play LeMoyne, I think you saw that a little bit with Lenore Ryan uh, in the championship game. They came out and they were flying. They were hitting shots. They were going after LeMoyne. Then all of a sudden LeMoyne made a little bit of a run. And then you saw Lenore Ryan become, I think, a little more calculated, try not to lose and try not to kind of let LeMoyne get out in front, then kind of keep attacking them. And I, I feel like if you're going to beat those teams, you know, who cares if you lose by eight or one, you know, it doesn't matter. So like, yeah, let it all hang out and challenge them. And I think that's the only way you can win. I think we did that with the Delphi and then kind of started to get that rivalry more in our favor. And then with Lemoyne, you saw kind of the end in the last few years, it went to our favor in terms of us at Lemoyne. Um, and then Limestone was no different. You know, I mean, Limestone, ironically, we played in the regular season that year in 17 and we beat them. And I think it was actually, I love playing tough competition as does, you know, JB at, at Limestone. And I think it almost worked in their favor where I think they saw a team that was as big, as skilled, as confident. And I think we woke them up a little bit for them to like, if we would have played them in the national championship alone, I don't know if we would have had their attention enough as we did beating them the regular season, them kind of expecting like, all right, this team's good. Um, and then you played, I thought pretty well, their face off kid walked on water that day. And um, we had a few injuries that kind of hurt us in the early going. And, you know, you lost that game in 17. It was the same thing all over again. You went to the press conference, and there's actually a photo um, of me and the three captains and the look of devastation on the faces of everybody was just, I mean, you could, it was palpable just looking at the photo. Um, but then you leave and you're like, okay, you know what, this is how sports work, you know, division one football, you know, pro hockey, pro that you got to go there and lose before you know how to go there and win. I think that's part of the process with us. We went there, we lost. And I think all those guys said, all right, we worked really hard to get there there's got to be another level of work to get back there and win it. So, you know, now you're a D1 program. And uh, from my research, Merrimack, you know, you were a D2 program before, but you had established a standard as a D1 program. So um, have there been changes since then uh, with practice planning or on-field preparation? Or was it, you know, a pretty smooth transition as you'd already set that to expectation? No, it's a good question. We Nothing really changed in terms of, the way we act, the way we approach practice, the way we, you know, the drills and the expectations didn't really change. I think what really changed was like understanding that if you're playing a middle of the road division two team and you have a bad Wednesday practice, let's just say, we can still go work really hard and, and our talent will show through and get a win on Saturday against most teams that aren't named, you know, Adelphi, Lemoyne and, and, and Limestone, maybe and a couple others, you know? And I think what we realized in D1 is you know, if you look at our record, you know, and you look at our losses, we had a we had a pretty bad showing in our first Bryant game this year. We 
you know, had a lot of, you know, reasons why I don't want to even get into it. And they're a good team. They played great. But if you look at every other loss, I mean, these are one goal losses, you know, two goal losses. These are really good teams. BU, UVM, St. Joe's, Bryant the second time, you know, you keep going down the list. And I think what we realized is Fairfield was another one. We had the lead, lead late and then did win. Um, you can't throw away certainly a practice. You can't throw away a drill. Um, you can't rest guys either. That's the other thing is you can't kind of say, well, you know, this guy's banged up. Let's sit him on Wednesday and Thursday and get it ready for Saturday. You know, you need guys, everybody ready every day. And I think that's one thing you realize in Division One is um, it goes back to what that Lemoyne point I just made. You know, we spend a lot of time on these teams because they're talented and they're very well coached. But we believe we're as good as these teams. So if we spend hours and hours, it shows that we're maybe, you know, a little worried that we're not as good. Um, but you really realize just how many games are decided by a couple plays, you know, and actually look at the Maryland National Championship game against Virginia. You know, I mean, you know, if that faceoff guy puts it on net or, if, you know, a couple of those transition shots go in or they back up the net, you know, Maryland maybe wins a national championship, you know. So I think that's the one thing we've seen is the level of attention uh, to everything has escalated. I think they're a lot more aware. Um, and they were a hardworking, you know, it was a great culture in D2. Our guys worked their butts off and, and they prepared. But I think there's another level that you'll find uh, when you go to Division One. Yeah, so it's not, you know what you're saying is that the detail level of, of to be successful is is much more elevated once you go up the, to D1. Um, and I, I would assume then that your expectations they were always I'm sure high at D2 as well. But um, how do you maintain the expectations when you're not performing you know either on or off the field? And you mentioned there a couple of times where you're in games where they're pretty close, a situation or play here or there, and it could have gone your way, but um, how, how do you continue to maintain the high expectations you have for your for your guys and, and for your team? It's funny because, you know, we expectations wise, you know, I, I don't like the word expectations because it kind of implies you expect something, you know. So for me, mm -hmm. it's expectations are, you know, very internal for us. You know, we talk about, you know, our goals and we don't really care if, you know, team or, you know, publications are saying, you know, Merrimack's going to only win a game or two, or some people are saying, oh, Merrimack's going to contend at the top of the NEC right away. You know, that stuff's kind of irrelevant uh, to me and our team. But I think the expectations, you know, we we struggle with that, honestly. And uh, early on, I think we were kind of coming up with, because you have, you know, our goals in D2, you know, were win the NE10, make the tournament, um, outwork everybody every day, have over a 3.0 GPA and carry yourself off the field well. Uh, and then our mission was obviously the national championship. And now that shifts, you know, we had to come up with new goals and new missions. And, and we struggled with that because we were like, you know what, are we going to set them too high? Are we set them too low? And we kind of came out and just said uh, our mission and our goal is respect. And, you know, everything else, you know, culturally stays the same. Our goal is in the classroom, everything else. But it was about respect. So I don't know if respect means, you know, you win 10 games or you win three games, or you're in all these tight games. But I have seen the lacrosse community. It's funny when you finish five and five, you know, I, I you know, I don't think we lost five five games in our last three seasons in Division Two, and you know, you go five and five, and and people come up to you and they're like, "Wow, what a great year! I can't believe you guys are as good as these teams right away with no Division One recruits." And right. you know, there's a part of that that you do kind of acknowledge and go, "Yeah, you know what? Maybe you're right, but that doesn't help us win games." You know, so the moral, <laughs> you know, if you know me and, and our program, we're not a big moral victory program, and I think. Um, we did gain respect. I think that's kind of our first goal. And now it's, you know, turning those one goal, you know, losses and one goal wins. And I think that's something where, you know, I've always believed that if, you know, if I came in and said, hey, guys, you know, we want to we want to be 500 this year. 
you're not going to be 500. You're going to be three and seven, you know, and if you say, hey, listen, you know, we want to win every game on our schedule. We're able to do that. I think you can shoot high and still accomplish, you know, some good stuff. So this year was good. I mean, it was it was different. You know, I think for us, um, I was even more encouraged where we're going and where we are when we had 14 freshmen come in this year and we had six transfers. So 19 players, which is basically half our roster, was brand new. Then you throw in that we lost our best midfielder and, you know, the best player maybe ever in Division Two in, in Charlie Bertrand to go to Virginia. Um, and then you take a limited preseason with cohorts and, and less practices and everything. You take a team that, um, you know, is brand new. They got to adapt to the culture. They got to adapt to the lacrosse side of things. And you're able to go have the success that we had. I think that's that's a good sign. I think and, and our guys learn pretty quickly. Um that the new guys coming in had to adapt and we had to do it kind of on the fly. And I'm, I'm excited for this year because, you know, we don't, we lose pretty much nothing from last year's roster and we bring back everybody. Plus you got that taste now of a full air quotes, full division one schedule in 10 games, but enough to give us an idea of, of what we got to do this year coming up. Do you follow that the John Wooden principle of, you know, never speaking of what we want to do in terms of the national championship, just looking for success you know, in practice, in a drill, in a game situation, in a period, uh, a quarter. Sorry, using a Canadian term there. <laughs> um, but is that something that you follow with your program? You know, just striving for success overall, or do you communicate? You know, these specific uh, markers with your group. Um, I'd say I'm kind of a hybrid. I think in the beginning, you set very clear goals and 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 your mission you know so everybody's on the same page you know and i think that's kind of just gives everybody the right mindset of like here's what we're believing here's what we're going to do then you kind of echo the cultural side of things like here's what we believe in you know academically here's what we believe in in accountability timelessness you know timeliness uh, uh attention to detail and everything we lay out very clear and then that third part for me is is very much the wooden approach where you know, worry about this drill, you know, worry about this rep, worry about then the next drill and then worry about the next day. Because I think with young guys, especially in the college era, you know, ranks or certainly high school, they all have their own vision of how to get there at times. You know, and I think the more you can simplify and hear coaches, I've believed in it from day one, that process. You hear Nick Saban say it a lot and some of these guys where, you know, you don't talk about one of the things we had in the locker room is we have a schedule board um, and we have a, like a square kind of cut out that's you know, basically taped over every game except the first game of the year. Um, so that focus is on that game. And then when that game's over, we have a, you know, game ball and somebody puts up either a W or an L on it. And then we take off, you know, the next one and then it's focused on them. So kind of almost that mindset of like, yeah, I know we have LeMoyne the fourth game, or I know we have this, you know, like let's worry about this opponent and then have a good practice today. And I said this to the guys in D2 a lot. It's like, listen, follow the process from day to day, practice, practice, drill to drill, rep to rep. And then when we get to May, you'll look up and be like, oh, we're here, you know, but you start thinking about May, you know, in October, it's not a good sign. I think that's where I, I kind of go both ways where, hey, listen, this is our goals. This is what we're going to do. This is what we believe in this year. And then it kind of translates into here's how we're going to do it. And then the third part is here's how we're doing it every rep of every day. And then, you know, our expectations are just, hey, we had a great one today. And you hear our term, we talk about stacking good practices a lot. And we'll be like, hey, listen, that's three good ones. Let's stack another one tomorrow. Cause when you have, as you guys know, a great week of practice, you know, not only do you feel confident, but I always feel like, and you know, I say this to our guys, you know, confidence comes from preparation, you know? So 
you know, when you go into a game and you feel like, wow, we had a great week. We looked good in this drill. We did this. We did this. When you go in there, whether you're on a five-goal run or, or you're part of a five-goal deficit run going the other way, you kind of keep playing and relying on what you did all week. So I think that's why that consistency of the process is just so important. You mentioned Charlie, and you've had some really good players too uh, outside of him. You know, uh, Greg Millar, Greg Gregowski, and, and, and you know, to name a few. Um, but when I watch you guys play, I always think dynamic offense. You know, it's a dynamic offense, and and you always seem to get a guy open. Uh, you know, or, or fish for slides, and and it's never. You know, I, I think a, a lot of the coaches that I watch, you know, um, you know, they, they are always dodging shorties and they're always dodging with their best players. And and you don't do that. Right. You you attack everybody from everywhere. So can you talk about that a little bit? How you guys, um, you know, what's your process in place, whether it's drills or or game plan or whatever to, to ensure that that happens and guys are always getting the great scoring chances? Yeah, it's, it's the philosophy we have with. I mean, pretty much the entire program and certainly the offense is, you know, we're going to play fundamental ball, but we're going to play fast. I think that's something that, you know, with a lot of programs, it's it's either or, you know, either you play with your hair on fire and the ball's, you know, humming around, you push in transition or you kind of slow it down and you're very methodical. And I've always believed from the first day, like, why not teach the fundamentals to these guys and teach them situational lacrosse, understanding the game as a coach and then play fast because, when you play teams and you watch our O, you watch our D, it's just consistently either attacking the net, moving it, attacking the net, moving it, and, and finding easier shots. Defensively, it's in the gloves, clean rotations, you know, and then all of a sudden you're on another good approach, another good approach. So I think that's one of the things that we've believed in is, you know, when we set up our drills and practice and whatnot, you know, we're, we're a very unselfish team, you know, and I think, in, and you mentioned the offense, like with those guys, um, you know, Brian did a great job, Brazil, and, and obviously now Kyle as well, and I think, you know, a lot of what Kyle has brought has been a lot of the, you know, the, the Canadian box game, um, hard picks, getting to the middle, increasing shooting percentage. And I think when you increase shooting percentage, it's one of the things I, I kind of learned from Kyle, you know, it does affect other parts of your game. You know, you end up sharing the ball more, you know, you end up, you know, staying away from alley runners that aren't great looks. Um, you end up not giving up transition the other way because you're taking better shots in the middle of the field. You always have to make better saves than an alley runner that they catch their ear and they get it out, you know? So for us, um, we and someone said it, I forget who the one of the uh, one of the guys did an article on us was like, you know, it's just consistent pressure the entire time. And I think when you can, you know, you build that and you see it even in Division One, like you play a team, um, you know, the Michigans of the world or Bryans or Joes, like they are big and they're athletic. And I think one of the things you do is you try to use that a little bit against them. You know, you make them play more as a team defense. You know, you take away their athleticism where, you know, instead of setting that pick or having a one on one dodge. You know, you're slipping it to give the dodge guy a better angle, you know, so I think that's the one thing that we've kind of implemented over the years um, that's made us more efficient. You know, I think then you can plug guys in, you know, obviously we've had, like you said, some, some really dynamic players, but I think Greg was, uh, uh, Rogowski was the last one that we really said, we absolutely just have to give him the ball and run the offense, you know, through him. Like, you know, we did it with Charlie at times as well, you know, specifically in Division One, we had to win matchups. But when you watch us play, you know, we have guys who, we're very under recruited that all of a sudden come out of game with three goals, you know, even in division one. And you're like, well, that's team offense. That's not him taking it and racking a guy, you know, it's him basically, you know, playing within the offense. And, and you got to teach the guys that like, guess what? If you give the ball up, you're going to get it back. You know, I think that's one of the things about our offense is like some teams, you know, have that, like if I, if I gave it up and the guy shot it next time I'm going and shooting it because I'm not moving it now with us, it's like, 
everybody believes that hey, if the ball keeps moving, you know, we're better off. So I think it's, it's a philosophy when you got to get your guys bought in and defensively the same thing. Like, listen, you know, it's okay to get beat to this area because we know we're going to slide to that and be good in the slide and release and have a plan on what we're doing. I think when you can play that fast and in guys' gloves, especially in Division One, you just can't sit back. I mean, I, I, I've never – I don't think we've ran zone but maybe five different possessions in, in two years of Division One because I've just believed that – you run zone against these really good teams, Division One. They might eat you up. And for me, it's like, you know what? Let's take the game to them, offensively and defensively. And that kind of goes back to what we just talked about. Like, you know, we have an identity, I think, and that's important in Division One. And, and I think when you have an identity of how you play and you stick to that and you play at a high, a high level fast, I think it makes good teams have to, like, you know, almost read and react a little more than just relying on their overall athleticism. So uh, you mentioned zone there, Mike, and and so you know uh, Virginia did win a national championship with the zone. Wesleyan did it a couple of years ago in D3 as well. And uh, but I remember when Virginia did it, I was still coaching high school at the time. And then the next year, it, almost every team is playing zone, you yeah. know. And 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 I, especially at that age, uh, well, my, my own opinions on her, you know, you got to teach man to man because every zone has great man to man principles, right? Yeah. And so. Um, what do you think that high school teams or, or youth teams, um, whether it's field or box, but really just in field, um, should do as far as teaching defense and teaching pressure? Um, is it man-to-man? Should we just be saying, you know, until you're 13, you're just playing man-to-man? Should we get rid of long poles until they're a certain age? Is there things that we should do to, to improve the footwork? Like, what you know, kind of what's your overall thoughts about that? Yeah, I I can't hate more zone at the at the youth and, and high school level. I just think that um, you know a kid sends us a, you know clips and he's a defender and you know I coach the defense and I'm looking for certain things and they run zone exclusively at their high school and for me it's like I get it I coach high school you're trying to win games but are these guys ready for the next level and the answer is usually no you know I mean some guys can do it um, but when I watch like at a club tournament or something when a team goes zone it's kind of like, you know, like you got to play good man, like you said first. And, and I believe in that our, our zones are very, it's funny when we run a zone and Holy Cross does it pretty well as well. And they did in the past is like, their zone looks like a man to man, you know, like it's not the same principles of, you know, it's like, like we'll stay on ball into a rotation. Wesleyan does that well too. Um, but I do believe at the college level, if you're going to be a zone team, be a zone team. You know, like Wesleyan is so good at it and they rep it all the time that when they play a team that, you know, think about it, like when you get ready for a team that runs zone, what do you, how much, how much zone offense do you run that week? Three hours, four hours, you know, at the end of the day, you're never going to be as good, but you got to teach principles like, you know, like Kyle does where, you know, you got to get in gaps moving, you know, you got to overload sides, like little things that we do in our, in our, uh, you know, offense versus man to man. But I, I think when you're young and you're, you know, you're trying to just win games at the youth and, and high school level running zone, it's so hard for these kids that like want to play in college to be able to learn those things. And um, my philosophy, and it goes back to what we just talked about in the last question is defensively, like we teach the fundamentals ad nauseum. I mean, these guys know every little thing about where your feet should be, how you stand on a pick, how you switch, how you slide and release, like everything we teach down to the bare bones. And then, and one of the, I guess is more philosophy is offenses. When I first started coaching, I felt like they run a one, four, Okay, and the one four when they dodge, this guy replaces, and teams would sit in a certain rotation, in a certain formation, you know, and you could easily go, all right, here's our one, two, and you could design almost like a football defensive coordinator. Okay, here's where we're coming from, here's our two. 
with offenses now, especially like ours and, and a lot of the pairs look people run, they're in four different formations every possession. So it's impossible to just script out where the slide comes from, where the recovery is, you know. So we've gone more of the route of, all right, we're going to teach our guys the fundamentals. We're going to teach them situational across of who we want to come off of and why. And if we come off that guy, okay, here's where we place, here's where. So I think it allows them to say, all right, within principles of any offense, any formation, here's how we approach it. And I think then it allows you guys to play really fast and play reactionary. So it almost teaches them how to be more so like coaches on the field to understand like which is the correct you know guy to come off of like why and, and i i say it's it's you know defense to me is premise and preference and premise is okay here's what we want to do here you know here's how we want to approach <clears throat> you know this you know this dodger here's how we want to do this here's how our our general you know premises as to how we play defense and then the preference side is okay in that, who are we playing and what do they do well and who do they have? So then it becomes, all right, here's how we play all the time. And then within this game, we want to come off this guy more. We want to, you know, double in this area. We want to play this guy to his offhand and then slide up the middle. We want to. So it, it allows your guys to kind of shift on the fly. And I, I just think that even at the high, even at the college level, you can't, you know, teach like these exotic slide packages. Like look at Notre Dame. Notre Dame and Maryland are two of my favorite defenses to watch. And it's never that they're outsmarting the other offense. Like, it's never like, oh, look, they're coming off this guy. And it's so exotic. Like, there's something to that. And we wouldn't get paid. Like, we all get paid to, like, just go, yeah, just run and stuff. So, like, there is a certain, you know, structure to what you're doing, where you're coming off of. But I do believe that you can't script an entire slide package against an offense that's going from an open look, you know, to a 2-2. Then a guy replaces out on a dodge to a 1-4. And it's kind of like, you know, for me, then it's like if I teach these guys how to understand what formation we're in and why we want to come off guys, it makes it so much more effective. And that's why, like, Maryland and, and, and Notre Dame, you know, they, they have specific things they do and reasons why they do it. And then no matter what the other team's in, they always look like they're pretty organized. I, I love the Notre Dame defense, right? I love that they don't uh, – it's not uh, – when Matt Lannis – Matt Lannis didn't cover the best player. He covered the guy that he covered, right? They didn't care about matchups. They just cared about – we're doing the fundamentals and we're doing it the right way. Right. Um, what do you think about the, the shot clock? I know that you guys play uh, pressure anyway, so it didn't really affect your team or at least my eyes and my view. It didn't really affect the way you, you guys changed the way you played. But um, what about at the younger levels? Like, should we be doing things with the shot clock in the, in the field game? I never believed it. Then I moved up here and I started to see the box game and, Kids are learning to make quick decisions because they have to. Kids are learning to read and react. The touches are there. Kids are getting better. Like you said, you're getting to the high percentage area, and, and that's forcing you to have to share the ball when the defense slides and reacts to it, right? So are, are, are we doing things the right way in the States with uh, – or even in Canada, we don't have a shot clock in, in, the, uh, in the field levels either at the youth level. Are, are we making a mistake there, or is it right to allow the kids to develop the way they're doing it? Yeah, I, I think you have to have kids understanding the game before you put a shot clock in. Because, yeah, it'll look faster because you're going to have more urgency to go to the net because there's a shot clock. But are they making the right decision? So I think if you have the youth kids learning the game the traditional way of, like, here's how we do this, here's how we do this. And then I think you build that into, okay, now that we understand all this, how do we do that within, you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 80 seconds, whatever it is. So I think at the college level, yeah, you're right. We didn't have to adjust much. The only part we 
we had to hurry up. We play a lot of cat and mouse in the subbing game. You know, we, we like to play in five on five and four on four. We'll drag guys to areas of the field where we won't let them sub off. Um, so we had to be a little quicker in that. But it didn't affect, like, how we played, really, because we do move the ball and find shots relatively quicker. But I did see with a lot of the lesser teams in Division Two, not so much in Division One, the shot clock really hurt them in those first few years because, like, they didn't really have the ability to get a good shot or understand, like, how to really play great offense. So now it was just rushing shots and rushing shots. And it did speed up transition because now, you know, the, the more you rush – in some capacity, the more you turn over, the more you take a bad shot. And those go the other way for transition. I think that helped the game that way. But yeah, I think we there's talk at the college level now about, you know, what do we do with the shot clock? And, and I think 80 is great. I think 80, you make a save, you have time to clear it. Whatever your subset is, you can go long, go short. You can play with two ways. Um, you can play short time with your with your regular sixes, you know, with your regular offensive middies. Um, but the reset is something that I'm, I'm waiting to change. I think, you know, when you have a a defense that plays 70 seconds of good defense and all of a sudden, you know, they hit a goalie in the helmet and it goes out and they pick it up and they get another 80. That to me is like, why are we rewarding them another 20 seconds for hitting goalie in the helmet or hitting the pipe, you know? So for me, I think it, it's, it, and then I could also play devil's advocate and say that in having a shot clock, you're making, like you said, making guys make quicker decisions and move the ball. And I think it, it's, and again, at the end game of this is growing the sport. And when I look back, and I, I haven't watched one of these games, I always say I'm going to do it, but thinking about how dull the game was when you come down, you throw a pass adjacent, it goes out of bounds, horn, you know, <laughs> six guys run off the field, six guys run on, they get set, ref looks around, all right, reset ball. Then all of a sudden you go to clear it, you fail to clear out of bounds, horn six guys run off six guys come on i don't know how anybody watched the sport back then honestly and i think for now when you watch it you know i remember when maryland was really good um you know i'm trying to think of what year it was but i mean it was unwatchable they would go to the invert offense and it would just be three i mean lemoyne i mean that's a perfect example i remember going up to lemoyne we'd be down two at nine minutes left and i felt like the game was over you know because it was like they're just going to have the ball for at least six of these minutes They'll probably get a reset. They got a good, they got a good face-off guy. So even if we score, and now you know, you fast forward to the shot clock at Lemoyne in in nineteen, and ironically that year, you talk about rivalries. We lost, we won by one in the regular season, we lost by one in the NE10 playoffs, and we won by one in the NCAA tournament. So the last three games we played against Lemoyne were one goal wins in each direction. And I remember the first game against them, we were down eight three at home with nine minutes left and we came back and won a regulation and there's no way that happens in a non-shot clock error you know and i think it, it does add an element of urgency but i do still think you know you got to teach kids the right way if you if you roll out a shot clock in youth you know it's either more errant passes bad shots you're probably even compounding the issue of youth kids you know my daughter's you know eight now and you know it's her first year of organized lacrosse because COVID took away year one uh, they have to make three passes before they can shoot it. And there's plenty of girls on her team, in current included, that could pick up a ground ball, run by two or three kids and run and score. And I think if, at the youth level, if you have a shot clock, does it condone a little more of just get it to your best player, have them run through a double and go shoot it? You know, so I can go both ways, but I think overall the shot clock's been good. But I, I'd like to see it out of, you know, out of the youth as long as possible. 
Yeah, I remember I was uh, I brought my my son is nine, my oldest is nine, and we went down to um, I think it was Rochester for a tournament a couple of years ago from Ottawa, and they had the three pass rule, which was which was great. I think it's a great rule in theory, but then you have coaches on the other side that are you know telling nine year olds just to go shut off all the other kids because yeah. they have to make their pass. Like so, okay. it's like it's not the spirit of the rule sometimes gets taken advantage of by coaches at the youth level. But I, I do agree. I think that you can do, there's lots of ways you can get that going without, um, without having to put a shot clock in place for sure. If you have the right coach, I think if you have the right coaches and they're teaching it the right way and lacrosse is still, you know, we're not in our infancy certainly anymore, but the more you're having coaches at the youth level who are teaching how to play the game, you know, like I see the same thing you see. I see that on defense and I see on offense, if a girl has the ball and another girl's five yards away and no one's around, they throw it to the other girl and the other girl throws it right back to them and they try to get three passes in quickly. And it's like, well, we're not really teaching the game, you know? So for me, I think that if the game grows to a point where all these youth, you know, kids have pretty established coaches that are coaching how to play the right way, I think that'll happen organically and the kids will start understanding to move the ball. Um, but I do think having the structure in where it's like, you're kind of forced to share the ball without a shot clock, I think outweighs, um, you know, the shutting off and the, you know, the, the pancake passes, whatever they call them, they dump it in the kid's stick and then they get it back to them, you know, and, um, but it, it's been, it's been different. I mean, now having to go through youth, cause I didn't play, I didn't play ball until my, uh, spring of my freshman year of high school. So I didn't pick up a stick until then. So I was very late. Um, I'm probably the only kid on Long Island who didn't play lacrosse when I was three years old, you know, but, uh, you look at it now and I'm going through it for the first time watching her and watching youth and, it, it's interesting, you know, how, how like different coaches approach different things of so passing the ball and playing defense. And, you know, and I still think it goes back to that zone conversation. Some of these coaches are trying to win, you know, U9 games where it's like, yeah. can we teach them the right way? Uh, following the conversation about development of the game and, and where it's going, what are your thoughts about the proposed Olympic format? Uh, is running the 7v7 the next wave of, of the future in the youth lacrosse? Uh, if, if so, is that a good direction? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't watched uh, a lot of youth uh, with the boys, but I don't know when they start picking up long sticks, but I am a firm believer that these guys should not have long sticks in their hand when they're 10, 11 years old. I just think you're not developing um, much of the game. And what ends up happening, too, is you end up pigeonholing kids, like where I grew up a basketball player, and, you know, when you're in seventh grade, if a kid is six foot, you immediately put him at center. And that kid ends up being 6'2 in high school, and he's not playing center at six to in high school. So he develops all these, you know, low post moves to try to win games when he's 10 or 12. And then all of a sudden the kid doesn't grow much. He's six two, And now he doesn't know how to play on the perimeter. Uh, you know, when he gets older, I think it's the same in lacrosse. Like these kids, you give the big tall kid the pole and all of a sudden it's like, you know, well, he's not developing stick skills or understanding of offense. Um, that's one thing we try to do with both sides of ball with us is we try to have our offensive coaches, spend as much time with our defenses coaches and vice versa for both sides to understand the other side. You know, I think that really helps in developing. And I think, you know, if you went to that format, you know, with the seven on seven with the younger kids, I think, you know, many, the, the kids who are good at short stick and playing that way when they're young, they could pick up a pole as they get close to high school and be pretty much, I think the same player they would be if they picked that pole up when they were 10 years old, you know? So I think it does, it teaches the game a little better. It teaches spacing and understanding and defense footwork on D, you know, you don't have that pole. Cause at the youth level, if you have a kid who's 5'11 with a pole, you know, no one's gonna dodge them. And we see what our guys, like I get kids from non-traditional areas defensively, 
and we got to teach them how to, you know, how to get their hands on guys and drive and be hold and, and different like techniques, because at the younger levels, no one's dodging them, you know, like they don't have to use their feet. They just use their stick and their length, you know? So I think it would help develop a more well-rounded kid, you know, coming out of, I guess, the youth ranks. So I love the, um, the quick, the quick little jab that you had in there about uh, your coaches uh, working with the O and the D side uh, throughout the season. I know that's something that the all blacks um, are, you know, really methodical about is that the little learning process they set up within their um, team environment and, you know, guys will switch back and forth in different roles for a period of time during the season to make sure that they can see it from a different perspective, uh, you know, interact with different players on, on the team. So I think that's a, a very healthy practice. Um, changing gears a little bit, um, I, I would imagine your role uh, is, you know, as a head coach of a D1 program, you're throwing a lot of time in your hands. So um, do you manage to, to find some time to find new ideas um, you know, what kind of things do you try and do to continuously improve, uh, your coaching? Uh, a little bit is that, that development, you know, meeting with other coaches, you know, kind of going back to the roots on that, uh, watching a lot of lacrosse. You know, I think we, you know, we watch a lot and we kind of see what teams do. And then we're like, and I've always believed in my coaching, you know, career that, you know, a third of the ideas, you know, you came up with yourself. It's something you really like, you really want to do. A third of it is, something someone else does but you don't love exactly how they do it it doesn't fit you as much so you take what they do and you kind of tweak it a little bit and a third is completely stolen you know a third is hey i like blah blah does this and it's a you said before it's a copycat type league where if someone does something someone else adapted so for us i think you know we we always try to learn and and toy with new concepts we're actually in give give coach smith credit you know he came up with the idea of this fall we're going to do uh an olympic style you know short field all short sticks and have these guys kind of just, you know, do like a round robin tournament. We, we drafted the teams. So I think that'll help them develop. But I think it's one of those things where it goes back to the coaching part too, because, you know, early on when I've had coaches come on, it's like, here's what I want to do offensively. This guy goes here, he clears through, we have this, we have this. And I would just go, well, what if they play out early to X and just shut X? And they're like, well, would they do that? And I'm like, well, I just thought of it in two minutes. We've been talking. So I'm sure the team that's scouting us is going to have an idea that we want to play through X. So it's more so of them going, okay, so if they do that, and it, and it gets, you know, offensive guys thinking like defensive guys and vice versa, where you start to learn what the other side's trying to accomplish and then how you can kind of take it away and like what the concepts are. And we try to do with our guys too when we play um, small field stuff, having the O guys play D, you know, because it's like, listen, you know, this ain't easy, you know, and I think, you know, when the when the transition guys come down, it's like, oh, hey, we're going to let you play early offense. But guess what? Just because you're a D nitty doesn't mean you get to come down and just throw the ball over the yard because we're pushing transition like you have the same, you know, expectations as an offensive player. So it's really just having these guys understand the other side, what we're trying to accomplish. And then, you know, we see it with our guys when an old guy gets caught on D, you know, we don't see like the run out, throw a wrap check be undisciplined. It's like, no, your, your expectations on this possession is to play defense the way we play defense. So I think the more you can keep guys specialized, understand their side of the ball, but also tasting the other side of the ball over here and there is important. Mike, you're taking a field team up to Canada to play box across for the first time. You're taking your Merrimack program. You're going up there. Very little box uh, experience. What are you telling them on the bus trip up? Are you going to go through the X's and the O's, the difference in the game? Are you going to let them play and figure it out? Kind of what would you do in that kind of situation? 
I'd tell them to pack rib pads. That'd be the first thing. <laughs> that's what I said in the interview. I said, stay away. Don't hug the board. Hug yeah. the boards. That's what well, I said. Don't, you know, that's, that's what I said. It's a great question because I think one of the things that you're seeing is a lot of these guys, the, the field guys, really are valuing the box game more in the last probably like five or ten years where they play box. You see box leagues popping up everywhere. They do indoor stuff now. And I think a lot of our guys have box experience in some way or another. Um, you know, and then they kind of – you know, they face it for the first time. And I think, you know, your skills develop out of necessity. And I've seen that, you know, if you're an over carrier, good luck. You know, if you're a guy who, you know, is afraid to get your hands on a guy near GLE, you know, good luck. And I think that's the one thing, you know, you tell the guys is, you know, keep your head on a swivel, move the ball, you know, and, and expect it to be physical. You know, and I think that's the one thing that the, the box, you know, game is, is so unique where you combine that, that, you know, skill in such a tight space with the toughness that comes from, you know, usually don't, like we said before, you don't see teams that are, you know, uber tough and uber skilled, you know, it's usually one or the other. But when you watch box teams, you know, they're all skilled and they're all tough, you know, I think so, you know, if I was taking our guys up outside of the, the contact part, it would be like, you know, you guys have played this before, you have an idea, but now times, it times 10, you know, like if you come off a pick, you know, you know, lazy and and you know you basically pop lazy guess what your guy's doubling and, and and you know beating the tar out of the guy with the ball you know so i think um it is something that we try to get our guys to play we have a couple guys coming in in this year's class uh, you know in the fall like three or four play have played box a lot you know so they develop a little bit of that skill and i think you know it, it's it's an area where we try to get our guys more and more affiliated with so they kind of understand it because that's where a lot of the field games going you know and i think this you know, look at Denver's the world and some of these teams, like the concepts they have are, are very much box, even even a lot of us. Um, but yeah, I think I, I would love the guys to get as much experience as, as a lot of them do. And um, it develops their game. Like I said, you can't, you know, you know, it, you know, if you snap at the ball, you know, or you're just uber athletic outdoors, a lot of that, you know, isn't going to help you inside, you know. So I think that's the one thing that you'll develop other parts of your game out of necessity. Are you doing like I know I've seen videos of High Point uh, doing box across kind of in their tennis courts. I mean, uh, you know, beautiful campus. They can be outside outside all year round, so a little different. But are you doing anything with the box game to do it, or or not even like a box field hybrid or small sided games or different things? Or are you just you know, hey, this is our this is our uh, this is our season. We lay it out and everything is 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 built for the field game. We um, I guess the best way to describe that is we do it. But it's more so of an addition to what we do already. You know, we don't really take away certain drills and things we're teaching and go, hey, today we're only doing this box related stuff with the with the three by three nets, you know. So what we've done is, and this is a lot of credit to Kyle, you know, he he has a very box game, he has a box history, you know, he played at UMass, but he plays like a box player, you know, he's super one handed, you know, great hands, good vision, understands how to move it out the ball, play off guys back helmet back of their helmets. And, you know, he was like a couple of years ago, he's like, let's get some three by nets um, and have the guys be able to access them whenever. So our guys will go out there and they'll play three on three with a tennis ball, you know, and, and or three on two with a goalie. Um, and it's just teaching them, you know, to find the odd man situations, catch with, you know, up near your ear, get it out, move off the ball, set good picks. And our guys play it a ton now. Like they'll go under the under the bleachers, they'll pull the nets out and they'll just play, you know, for hours. And I think that's something where we've made it fun because you know it's competitive and the guys like it and you're out there you know, no equipment on you're just challenging each other i think then when you do it you see guys that play it a lot all of a sudden their game field game improves you know and i think that's something where it goes back to you know if you don't have good hands 
good luck playing three by with a tennis ball, you know? And I think that's one of the things that when you start doing that and you get better there, it translates. So we've kind of used it as like an additional channel of what we're doing. You know, we try to stay pretty traditional with how we teach the year and the structure up to a certain practice and scrimmages and games. But that's like a, a complete side thing we do now where we, it might become more of what we do practice wise. But for our guys, I think it's nice that they can they go out there and they play all the time, you know, and I think it's just they start to learn, oh, if I cut here, you know, or if I set a good pick, this guy's fighting over the top bit, I'm slipping it. You know, so they, they learn the concepts by playing with and around the coaches, but also just like the failures and successes of, of actually, you know, playing it. And so that brings us to our last question. You know, we started this podcast uh, because we wanted to get better as coaches. And Darcy has a, a heavy box background. I have a heavy field background. And um, and we're just looking to continuously improve. So uh, the final question is, who do you think we should interview next in our uh, search here to become a, a continuous coach? I mean, if Matt Brown's on the docket, that wouldn't be a bad Matt one. Matt Brown, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. We'd love to get him up there. He's what I like to hear. I mean, there's some guys that are a little more um, untraditional. Volker would be one. You know, I think the way some of these teams play, um, I'm always more interested. It's funny because when you grow up in one background, you, you tend to always be more interested in, in another one. Like, I don't really, you know, want to hear guys that have the same philosophies as me speak. You know, I mean, I want to hear – um, you know, goalie coaches speak. I want to hear guys that have box backgrounds. I want to hear zone off, zone defensive for as much as I don't love it. I like to hear zone defensive coaches talk. Um, but I would say someone who, you know, if you're, if you're trying to, I guess, and again, like you said, improve and, and think outside the box, like we all are. Um, that's why like Neil Anderson's a good one where, you know, a lot of similar stuff, but a lot of different philosophies, but um, there's a lot of guys who Craig McDonald would be another one from UMass. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of guys who I think, um, you know, you could get a new way of, I guess, playing and, and, and approaching a transition game. Betts Bauer. I mean, you know, there's a lot of guys who I think, you know, if you're able to get some of these guys, I think, you know, they speak a lot down at these conventions and stuff. But I think it's always a little different when you're in a setting like this. I think everybody's a little more free and open, you know, to speak. And I think it's also speaking at maybe a higher level, because when you're at these conventions, you know, you're looking out and, and some people have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And I think you have a crowd like you guys have, you know, where it's, you know, some box. And I think you can speak at maybe a little higher level technically on things and have people gain a little more interest. But yeah, I think some of these Sean Kerwin, you know, would be another one from yeah. you know Virginia. You know, I know Sean a little bit from from Tufts. Um, all good guys. I think guys that have like a new a newfound way of kind of doing things, but also have traditional ways of playing lacrosse also. Awesome. Well, well, Mike, thanks. Uh, you know, uh, we really appreciate it. I, I love the lacrosse community. It's it's great to just be able to email a, a top D1 coach and have them say, yeah, how about this day? We'll jump on. So we really appreciate your time and uh, and, and thank you so much. And I know uh, Darcy wants to, uh, I think he's clamoring to say something here too, so I'll shut up and let him talk there for a sec. Yeah, I just want to say thank you as well. Um, I don't have as much opportunity to talk uh, with field coaches as, as Mark does and previously or currently. So uh, I, just like you said there, I really like the idea of, you know, you want to try and find someone who is different than you to see what ideas, uh, you know, of the third ones that you like, don't like, or are going to steal. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, so uh, thank you for your time, Mike. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks again. Cheers. Sure. Bye-bye. Well, Mark, um, I haven't had a chance to speak to very many D1 coaches, so I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak to Mike. Um, I know you have some various connections 
um, from yourself and, you know, where you grew up and where you coached in that area. Um, but I don't think you've ever spoken to Mike directly, um, you know, in this kind of form before, have you? No, yeah, it was definitely the first time I ever spoke with him. Um, I've watched his teams play for a very long time. Uh, even when I wasn't living in the Boston area, it was still one of the programs that I would watch and um, and, uh, and and try to emulate a little bit at the higher levels. Um, also, I've seen him speak at uh, some conventions or some different things like that. But again, never had any direct, direct uh, contact with him. The first thing I took away from it, and I can't remember exactly where the conversation it was, but you know, we talked about um, just the culture of learning, I would say, amongst field coaches. There's so much sharing. Um, they're so happy to have people come in, you know, come to practice, uh, talk, or get a chance to just watch, whatever it is. But it always seems like they're willing to bring in other people to, to look at their program and then try and pick their brain a little bit and also, you know, help everyone else out in the, uh, in the field across community in general. So... Uh, that was a big thing I've, I've, I've noticed with him and, and same with Neil Anderson as well. You know, just that um, the community of learning amongst the field coaches. Um, it, it seems like there's a like it's a culture that exists. You know, I think you can speak to that a little more perhaps about, you know, when you you reach out to someone um, and the experiences you've had in, in doing that. Yeah, I mean, Mike said it himself that you know it's it's a it's the greatest community of coaches in sports, right? Is the uh, the the field across community of coaches and. You know, the, I've never reached out to a field lacrosse coach for help and, and been told no. Right? I've been told, you know, now's not the best time. Let's connect in a couple months. Um, but anytime I've ever needed it, uh, people have been there. And you can see that, right? I think you saw that in what Mike said and how that mimics a little bit of what Neil said. And he talked about how they collaborate, right? And and then you, you can kind of go down that rabbit hole in that chain if you know who Neil spoke with, which, you know, I get a lot of stuff from Neil. And so a lot of that is reflected in my game, which then, again, kind of trickles down. And a lot of stuff that Mike says, you know, is, is very relevant to me because, I kind of picked that up through Neil and that kind of, uh, you know, kind of game of telephone tag, if you will. <laughs> um, what, I, what I really like what he talked about, though, you know, there's three points that I want to I want to hit on. And the first one is is sixes. And uh, and you would ask them, do you see the way that do you see youth lacrosse maybe going in that direction? And I, I love this answer. I continually have to tell kids when I coach them, um, you know, you don't need a long pole. You've got to get your footwork down first. And if then if you're a long pole when you're when you're nine, the chances are you're still only going to be a long pole when you're in eighth grade. But like Mike said, you know, anyone can pick up a long pole at any time once they have the basics down with a short stick, you know, and um, and, and you're ready to go. I think the other part of that, too, that I would, uh, you know, I would definitely change a little bit with my youth program is the way he talked about um, not using the shot clock, you know, but he talked about three passes and but keeping that to the spirit of the rule. You know, and I think, you know, when I look at Bytown or some of the things I do with the youth level with the nemesis, you know, I'm going to look at it that same way. You know, maybe not put the shot clock on the kids, but let's let's give them the spirit of the three pass rule, explain why and then and then implement that. Yeah, he talked about, oh, they have a three-pass rule, but then it's like, uh, you know, coaches are trying to win, so they say lock this person off or that person off, or or just do a couple flip passes, you know, in the middle of the field, and then you're good to go, right? Get the ball to your, to your best dodger, and let's get a goal on the board. Um, and I think that was one thing really I took from him, too, there is, and, you know, this goes to all sports, but um, especially in box, you know, I think there's sometimes pressure to, to win, especially, you know, constant provincials, and it's August, late July, and, and everyone's tired and, and hot in the arena, and, 
everyone's driven down, especially in Ottawa, you're driven down, you're staying in a hotel. And so I think coaches in zone five specifically where we are, um, you know, feel some pressure to be successful uh, because of how much is being, you know, shelled out, right. From a financial point of view. But, you know, Mike was saying like, listen, the, the goal here at anything, you know, below, I think he said below 12 or 13 is really just to have the kids develop, you know, enjoy the sport and continue to come back and let's not force kids into certain roles. Let's um, provide them with opportunities to, to enjoy the game, to love it and to continue to get better and not feel that all there is to it is to win um, and to focus on our development, which I guess kind of bleeds into my next um, you know reflection from it was that transition from, from D2 to D1 and, um, you know, they always, they, he spoke about how the program was already running as if it was a D1 program, but when they got on the field, the biggest change uh, came in terms of the athletes they were going against. You know, at D1, the level of the athlete you have is much different, so they had to transition a little bit to a little more of, of some one-on-one play and, and trying to set up certain looks for certain guys. I kind of equate that to, you know, what happens in box, probably major Bantam into midget, where... Uh, you're moving away from perhaps a system offense or a system defense, and you're going to try and utilize certain players specifically in order to be successful as you start to move out of the minor program. Now, I guess I should say uh, U15 and U17, as we recently changed those, uh, those age groups here in Ontario. It's always hard. I, I'm always my parents' novice. No, uh, for, U11, formerly, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been a mess trying to, trying to switch to the things, and I've only been doing it for, for a little over a year up here. But... Um, you know, I think, you know, in the same vein, he talked about zone play and how and, and I agree with him. I'm so glad he said it, which is why I want to say it again. I will never have a, a team that is um, that's a 12th grader younger playing a zone unless it's a pressure zone. That's basically just man to man principles. Right. And so um, he talked about how, you know, he goes to games and he goes to see kids play that he might be interested in. But then they're playing zone and he just knows right away. This this guy is not going to be ready for the collegiate game, you know, and I think that's the big thing that that I try to stress uh, with my assistant coaches. And I think the big thing that um, anyone should stress with their assistant coaches on the field game is is teach a man to man. It's not about winning. It's not about getting that state championship. It's about how many kids continue to progress when they're underneath you and, and stay involved with the sport long term, you know, and long term. We often think as high school coaches that we got to win and when they're seniors and, and the kids want to win, and it's important. And, and, and I'm not saying winning's not important, but, you know, his career shouldn't end in 12th grade, right? He should continue to or she should continue to progress into college, even if they're not playing in college so they can be a lifelong member of the sport. And I think, too, like the other thing I want to talk about that he said was, you know, the, the the battle with Lemoyne, and I, I'm glad I I've wanted to ask him this question for a very very long time. I know you're not very familiar with it, right? But you know Lemoyne in D2 is synonymous with championships, always perennial number one. They used to only have um you know a, a small playoff. I think it maybe might have even just been a national championship game in uh, in D2, or maybe it was a Final Four. And so if you didn't have a great regular season, you know you, maybe you had a one a one loss season and you played everyone. And beat them, but you lost to Lemoyne. Lemoyne was going right, and so Merrimack was in that struggle for a long time. And to hear him talk about his change there in 2017, when he said, "You know what? We're no longer going to put these guys on a pedestal. We're going to treat it like it's any other opponent," and that resonates with me so much. You know, and I think that's something that 
that us at Carlton, we have a, um, you know, that's definitely something that we're going to have to deal with this year is that our guys haven't won much and they, and they, they look at teams and they think already, oh, it's McGill. Oh, it's, it's Bishops. Oh, it's, it's Trent, you know, and, and we got to have them just kind of, you know, tr- we're going to tell them, treat them like they're any other opponent, but then we have to do the same. And that doesn't mean that you, you should dumb it down for everybody else. It means whatever intensity you're going to bring into that game, you've got to make sure you're bringing into every other game with a game plan as well, even your opponents that, you know, maybe you're expected to blow and beat by 20. Yeah, it made me think of the Vancouver Canucks. When did they play your Bruins there? Was that 2011? <laughs> no, no, that was, uh, yeah, 2011 was the year Cade was born, 2011. Yeah, you know? so 2011, they finally, so they're playing the Blackhawks in three years straight, right? And they kept getting knocked out. And that third year, I think it was Burroughs scores an overtime goal, and they finally beat the Blackhawks. And I remember the announcer saying they slayed the dragon. Um, <laughs> and, you know, from, from, a, from a sports point of view watching, Perhaps you can use the terminology, but um, I think for us as coaches, just like I said there, you know, and Mike, what Mike said actually is put them on a pedestal or, or saying that, you know, this is a dragon that we have to slay. Those kinds of things make them big obstacles or, or things that kids overanalyze and overthink about. And and um, that, that speaks to, you know, focusing on the process, not the outcome of beating this one specific group, but just saying, hey, we're going to be great. We know we can be great. And let's go and do that. Um, and so... That's the what I when I heard him say that. That's what I heard myself. Thank you, Mark, for our reflection here, and I hope everyone enjoyed uh, the discussion that we had with Mike and um, and Mike. Thank you if you uh, get a chance to listen to us. Awesome. See you, Darcy.